0: While preparing for today's Songbook guest, um, an owner of, I'm led to believe, over 20,000 records, although I'm sure he'll tell us um, if that's right or not in a bit, I gravitated towards a book that isn't a grand work of narrative non-fiction, but a book that tells smaller stories of very special places. This is The Vinyl Revival and the Shops Are Made to Happen by Graham Jones. Graham's an album enthusiast who also made the very sweet film Last Shop Standing a few years ago. This is a guidebook to record shops, which includes lots of lovely nuggets about the human beings that run them. From Bedfordshire to Yorkshire via Mevagissey in Cornwall, where the local tourist information centre doubles up as a record shop, to Chameleon in Aberdeen, which sells designer Scandinavian furniture alongside other vinyl imports. It also includes one of my favourites near me, Haystacks in Hay-on-Wye, a psychedelically decorated cornucopia of a place up an alley with a great owner called, strangely enough, Hayden. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, which is out now in paperback. My guest today began writing in the 1980s for a fanzine called CAF that he put together with a friend of his, a friend he met when they were both still in buggies outside a butcher shop in Croydon. Through that fanzine, they go on to release records by the Manic Street Preachers and Parp for forming their own band, Saint Etienne. Sarah Crackle came along after their first two releases, but our guest also kept writing about music. Ravine for the Enemy, The Melody Maker, Mojo, Uncut, The Times, The Guardian, and many more in the years to come. Around releasing 10 studio albums, several films, and many more confections with Saint-Étienne, as well as making a lot of brilliant anthologies for Ace Records and others, my guest's also written a lot of books. 2013's Yeah, Yeah, Yeah was a survey of pop from Bill Haley to Beyoncé had as many lovely moments and hooks in it as an ABBA hit single. And last year's Let's Do It was an amazing survey of pop from the first half of the 20th century. His collection now has lots of wax cylinders and 78s in it to rival his cache of Indian pool 10 inches. With his partner, Tessa Norton, he also put together Excavate, the wonderful and frightening world of the fall. He's just finished a book in the Bee Gees and another is forthcoming on the Shadows. My guest today is Bob Stanley. Bob, how are you doing?
1: I'm all right. How are you, Jude?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Um, so, tell me how you got into writing in those very early days. How those fanzine roots, you know, have shaped you ever since. Uh,
1: well, I always wanted to write about music, and when I was supposed to be doing homework, I used to do sort of like invent sleeve notes for compilations in, in my room. So, uh, brand <laughs> new fanzines were a thing, uh, and um, uh, the first fanzine I started writing for was actually was one called Pop Avalanche. Uh, which I wrote with a few friends in Peterborough. I got moved. My dad got moved to Peterborough. Oh I mean. yeah, and it's one of those places where if you don't make your own fun, there's absolutely nothing to do. So um, this was like 1985. So There was a lot of um, uh, local local gigs in like Bedford and Cambridge and Leicester. Um, we go and see June Brides and the TV personalities and the Pastels and whoever. Um, and so it was very much the kind of C86 era, and we did. Uh, Pop Avalanche, and then I did uh, CAF with Pete, as you said. Um, and even in CAF, we was—I mean, we did a, the first one had a piece on John Barry and it. It was um, writing about old music and new music at the same time. So that was kind of always there. And then when we formed the band, it was kind of, they were the influences there as well.
0: Yeah. So Pete, Pete Wiggs, for those of you listening who don't know, St. Etienne, but I'm sure many of you do. Um, and the CAF um, fanzines, I've, you know, there's quite a few of them online now, and they're wonderful All to gone. see. Yeah, they are. They're great. <laughs> I, I'm always one for looking at the letter set stuff online. Um, it's always amazed me that you're not a technical musician as such, which is you've said, you know, you've put together so many really intensely musical productions from the start of your time with Saint Etienne, you know, really um, you know, uprooting and changing the way, you know, classic songs sound, like, you know, obviously only love can break your heart, who do you think you are? You know, um, how did you how did you manage to do that?
1: Uh, it was just, you know, if I didn't have talented friends, I wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> I, wouldn't <be> able to, <laughs> I could write, but I, could, I couldn't write music. Uh, I couldn't make records. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, having having ideas in my head, really. And 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 same with Pete. You know, we just that's how we started out. Um, so sampling was what kind of liberated us. Without that, we'd we'd have never we'd never have made a record. Um, I never had the patience to learn an instrument. I mean, Pete Pete <laughs> has a degree in soundtrack scoring he's uh, he's really um he can do anything now so uh, but i've i've got I've got to concentrate on writing instead because i've always thought of myself as a fan um and the music comes out of fandom i suppose and and, and my own record collection or whatever uh so yeah it's just i don't know surround yourself with good people <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're one of a rare breeds obviously like with um neil tennant um you know music reviewers who became you know pop stars um at the risk of sounding like someone trying to, you know, realise her ambitions. Um, Did being a reviewer um, help you make music?
1: Not really. It helped helped me have an understanding of of the music industry. So when we had recorded something, we thought it was actually quite decent and we could maybe get a deal for it. Then uh, we had some idea of what to do. Um, And Jeff Barrett put the record out, Only Love Can Break Your Heart, the first single. Um, And he was just like, he was like a, He'd been a gig promoter for years. He did press. Uh, So we just played it to him and said, uh, let us know what you think of it. Can you give us any advice? And he was like literally sat in the pub with his Walkman on listening to it. For four and a half minutes, we just sat there in silence next to him, like, nervously. And uh, he said, oh, I'm I'm starting a record label called Heavenly. Can I put this out? And we were like, yeah. But I mean, if if we hadn't known Jeff, I suppose if I hadn't been a a journalist, uh, or at least a fanzine writer, because that's how I first met him, um, then um, I probably wouldn't have met him and wouldn't have had that opportunity. have yeah.
0: certain connections. And, you know, somebody like Jeff Barrett, who is, like you, one of these um, self-starter Sounds a bit corporate, but somebody who just, you know, has an idea and just starts doing it. You know, when he set up the Court by the River website in more recent years and revived Heavenly again, you know, he's somebody who is always doing stuff. So you obviously do a lot of revisiting the past with St Etienne um, and the compilations you make, going back, remix compilations. Um but you never are particularly nostalgic um you're always trying to you know keep the past alive or keep little corners of the past alive or um that maybe get hidden um I get the sense you know of you've seen you doing that with um I've been trying to tell you that your last record, which looks at different corners of the nineteen nineties, I get the sense that that's what you do in your book writing as well
1: yeah absolutely i mean the the reason I wanted to start writing about music in the first place was to write about stuff that I love that wasn't getting written about. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, you know, when you write a book, write a book that you want to read, you know, if if it doesn't exist, then maybe you're the person to write it. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not nostalgic. I mean, I, I'm kind of, and I don't really understand how people aren't fascinated by history, which it completely sort of like uh, leads to where you are today, you know, just like living in, in the moment in, in isolation is, um, you know, a very noble thing to do, but it's, uh, you're not really going to learn much from just living in the moment. I love social history. uh, And I think, you know, pop music and social history go hand in hand. So that's, uh, yeah, that's where it comes from.
0: And obviously, you know, you did Yeah Yeah Yeah, which is a mammoth task. Although, you know, you knew a lot of these songs, you'd grown up, you'd been digging around, but then you go and do Let's Do It, which is, going to songs, some of the songs, you know, you may have known, of course. Um, there are some very well-known songs in it. But you're going into, you know, the deep past. <laughs> you're going from a 1901 advert and a stage for a sheet music lending library that promised all the latest pop music, pop with a capital P and a dot after the, the second um, P, uh, to the rise of rock and roll. Um, what was the pull of the pre-pop music as we know it era for you?
1: Well, when I wrote, yeah, 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 the... 50s chapters um in particular i realized that a lot of the time i was slightly bluffing because there was feeding <laughs> into the early stuff i was writing about that predated the predated yeah, yeah, yeah predated the 50s um and i didn't know that much about them and the, the more the more i wrote that the more i was thinking well i really ought to know this and i don't really know the chronology of um when irving berlin was writing when um I don't know Robert Johnson was around. Even you know, it's uh, I, I couldn't actually tell you those dates, uh, and I, I don't really know how um, Duke Ellington appearing at the Cotton Club then feeds into whatever. You know, it's um, it was just like how how it all knitted together. I wanted to find out, and I knew it would take a long time. So it took the best part of ten years to write, but that was that was fine by me because you know, it was ten years of like learning about this stuff and finding loads of great records I didn't know before. Um, but it's, yeah, I think you're right. It's, there's so many songs in there that everybody knows. Um, but people don't really know what year they were written, what, who first sang them, who wrote them. Uh, so that's why I wanted to write it to make it, you know, to write an accessible book that has that, that whole half century of uh, popular music in it.
0: And the book we'll talk about today um, goes into some of those as well. Um, but before I ask you the questions I ask every guest, you're, you've got two more books coming up, as I mentioned, uh, one of the Bee Gees and one of the Shadows. Why the Bee Gees and the Shadows?
1: Uh, because I've always loved the Bee Gees and the Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> the bit, I mean, yeah, neither, neither have there's, – there's, um, there's a couple of books on the Bee Gees. There's one one written by Dennis Bryan, the drummer in the Saturday Night Fever era, which is um, uh, who's, who's, uh, who's an Amen Corner. He's Welsh. Um, yeah and um, whatever, their rhythm section was Welsh when they were having their disco hits. Um, but so yeah, that, that's that's entertaining and um, he seems like a very nice man and he's got a lot of good anecdotes but it's um, not not the book on the Bee Gees um, that I wanted to read. So I, I just wanted to um, uh, tell their story which I think is an incredible story um, and their, their longevity is just for some weird reason taken for granted but I mean they were having hits right up until Morris Gibb died in 2003, um, pretty much 10 years ago. So 20 years ago, um, in February, 2003. Uh, so they were still making records up to then having top 10, top 20 hits. It's, um, and they started in 1963. The first single was. Mm. So that's yeah, unbelievable. You know,
0: mm.
1: Paul McCartney couldn't manage that. You know, the stones couldn't manage that. Um, they, they were again, I think that they're, they're, they're huge fans. Um, is the thing they just like would take in music like a sponge and it would come back out again this slightly weird way, like English was their second language. I mean, they they, they really do feel like a lot of the time, like they've been beamed down, <laughs> been given like 10 minutes to take the whole of pop music on board and then like write a song. It's uh, they sound so it's, it's very their songs are kind of conventional, completely unconventional at the same time, uh, and, as are their vocals, you know, everything about them is slightly off, um, but they have this incredible. Huge commercial success, so yeah, I think the story, the story is great, and so I wanted to write that. The shadow talk about it in a bit, because I think they're like the, my first musical love. So,
0: the questions I ask every guest, Bob. Now, I know you'll have good answers for these. Um, <laughs> um, oh, actually, before I ask the questions, too, how many records do you own?
1: I don't. Was I right? Um, <laughs> yes, probably more. To be honest, they're they're now in a in a in a in a mill because I live in New Yorkshire. They're in a bit of a mill. <laughs> <laughs> Out the house, yeah.
0: Right, I see. Okay, this idea of you going going to to Tut Mill and listening to all your records. So the questions I ask every guest, Bob. Um, can you tell me who the first music act was that you loved?
1: Well, yeah, The Shadows, I think, because um, when I was, you know, before I could read even uh, when I was when I was tiny, I was like given my mum and dad a stack of singles to play with. Um, And they had a a wind-up gramophone. I remember listening to Side Saddle by Russ Conway, which makes me sound like I'm 90. Um, (laughs) And uh, there was records they bought when they were teenagers. Um, My mum had 78s and my dad had 45s. And one of them was FBI by The Shadows. And that was was my favourite. I used to play that. And the B-side Midnight, I used to play them over and over. Um, And then when 20 Golden Greats came out in the mid-70s, I bought that when I was about 10. Um, So it was one of the first albums I bought. Um, yeah, just yeah, the the, shadow, the sound of the shadows, uh, Hank's guitar playing. Um, the, the, yeah, they've just I love instrumentals as well. I've always loved instrumental music, so obviously that went into film soundtracks later on and library music. Um, but yes, yeah, so the shadows were my way into that as well. And at that point, I didn't realize Brian Bennett, the drummer, wrote so much great library music. So, uh,
0: oh yeah, of course.
1: Yeah, so it came back into my life a bit later.
0: Who was the first music writer you loved?
1: uh tom hibbert who was uh at smash hits who basically invented the smash hits smash Hitsisms, i suppose uh things in inverted commas and calling freddie mercury sir frederick lucan of mercury and um all that <laughs> stuff that was all him but he also wrote a book called rare records uh in about uh, 1980 81 i think and I, I picked it up uh cheap and it was like wow here's someone who's writing about old music the way i think of it it was like. Uh, be very um uh well it's very funny uh, it was, it was, you know he was writing about things he loved but he wasn't scared of being um taking the mickey out of things but it was uh annette funicello or adam Faith or whatever lots of the 60s garage stuff he loved uh and he'd be really mean about the doors and it's like well no one was mean about the doors in 1980 It's like you know like got the bunny man and judy and cope and people like reverential obviously like now lots of people laugh at the doors but uh he's the first person I read doing that and he just I was like god you can write about pop music in that way that's fantastic um so yeah very early on he was like um my sort of first first person who made me think well like, oh, this is what I want to do.
0: What was the first music book that you loved?
1: Um well I'd so say the first music book that was like a proper inspiration was um What Bopaloo and Bop by Nick Cohen um which was uh you know it's, it's pretty well known he wrote it in 1969 um and it was like a history of pop music up to that point so it's basically like the first 15 years of uh sort of post-rock and roll modern pop music um and again it's like you know he's got a chapter on pj Proby in there just because he loved pj Proby. <laughs> he obviously wouldn't merit a chapter in anybody else's uh entire history of pop music um yeah it's just a it's a very it's very uh very snappy uh, very pop. He was, he was writing like the, the way the records sound, which was what he wanted to do.
0: Today's book um, is one you brought to me, Bob, that helped you when writing Let's Do It. Um, this is The House that George Built by Wilfred Sheed. The George of the title is George Gershwin, whose brief but incandescent career straddled Tin Pan Alley and Carnegie Hall, goes this book's blurb, and he charmed everyone in his orbit. The story also takes in a boy called Izzy, who became Irving Berlin, Cole Porter and Harold Arlen and songs as familiar as Summertime, I've Got You Under My Skin, There's No Business Like Show Business and Over the Rainbow. She declares that the work of these men constitutes far and away our greatest contribution to the world's art supply in this so-called American century. So, Bob, tell us about um, Wilfred Sheed and who he was.
1: Uh, yeah, it's the, one of the great things about the book is he wrote it really late in his life. You wouldn't guess it from the writing, um, and he died not long after he finished it. Um, but he, he'd met a lot of the writers. He was friends with a lot of the writers, and uh, he just drops in these anecdotes and fantastic quotes, um, willy nilly. It, but it's 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 an it's the most easy read in the world. It's it's very very conversational, um, but it tells you about you know apart from just. Uh, the, the the biggest names like Cole Porter and Irving Berlin is you know like people like Harold Arlen or um, um uh Arthur Schwartz or always people who wrote hugely famous songs who aren't necessarily as well known as um as um Hokey Carmichael or whoever, you know. Um but he covers he covers them all and it's like all, all the main all the main sort of what you call songbook songwriters now are, are in there. And uh and Duke Ellington as well, There's a chapter on Duke Ellington. Mm. Uh, cuz he says you can you can't really leave him out even though he's not a, a songwriter per se in the same way as the others um but yeah it's just it's 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 a beautiful read and it was it was one again it's one of those books I was like I was hoping existed and I was put onto it by Sean Rowley, um the DJ and um uh, cuz we we'd had the same conversation we you know about about a book like let's do it that didn't exist that could explain how all this stuff knitted together uh and this is you know obviously doesn't it takes in bits of jazz uh, it also explains people who weren't influenced by jazz, like Oscar Hammerstein, which is just as interesting because uh, they're kind of regarded in the same way as, so not Hoagie Carmichael was all about jazz. Um, Irving Berlin really wasn't really; uh, he predates jazz, and his first his first songs were in the early 1900s. Wrote songs right the way through to the mid 50s, all hugely successful. Like 50 years of songwriting without a pause. Really, he wrote you know songs about the war during the war, um, both wars. It suddenly stopped. He stopped in the mid-50s. It's like, you know, he just got writer's block, which he's always worried about getting. Um, I mean, that's one of the stories in here. Um, and, and then, you know, lived for like another 40 years, maybe 50 years, and, and never never published any songs. Just Wrote wrote songs for his family and just stayed in his flat. All, the, all these people, are, I, I didn't realise, he just makes them come to life. I knew nothing about Irving Berlin's private life or what he was like as a person um uh, or you know i wouldn't have recognized a photo of him you know it's um so it really it really brings them all to life it's 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 a, it's a really great book i mean it's, it's kind of like uh i'd rank it up with like something like england's dreaming as, as a book on punk this is kind of a book on the songbook writers that's equally thorough and really entertaining um and anyone anyone would get enjoyment out of it
0: it reminds you that you know things didn't just start out of nowhere in you know whichever point the 1950s you want to choose as the start of you know pop music as we know it it's uh you know shows that we you know how active you know songwriting sort of houses were you know in a way kind of um you know these and the, all these little um um all these kind of entrepreneurs you know kind of um coming from all these different backgrounds you know trying to you know get things together and make things um yeah. there's so many interesting contextualizations of you know the times you know she begins in the 1920s in the first chapter of the book and he talks about the coming of the microphone um and about how singing became more personal at that point um you know he talks about people like Enrico Caruso the great operatic singer you know kind of um people who belt as if they're performing to an empty stadium being replaced by people like Bing Crosby the world's friendliest voice um and about how music changed when it suddenly people had the facility to play music in their own homes, mm. which um so music is starting to become more accessible. You know, you've written, you know, I remember in Yeah, 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 you wrote about, you know, the internet coming in and how it, you know, changes the musical landscape as well. Um, I thought that was really interesting, how technology was the starting block, you know, to how the songbook sort of became what it was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the three-minute, three-minute pop song um, is basically down to seventy-eight, having th- between three and four minutes space on one side. They were invented in the eighteen nineties. It's um, and that just carries through. You know, it's like never, never changed. Now people think, well, a three-minute pop song is the ideal length for a pop song. <laughs> it's the only reason it it happened in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, the, the way that technology changes, but so many, like you're saying, the way the music when the music industry starts at the beginning of the twentieth century. It's so relatable to pretty much any time since entrepreneurs, people trying to make a fast buck, people just writing loads of terrible songs, like learning their craft, um, mm-hmm. and and songwriters like you know getting a novelty song, getting a break, and then becoming stars. Yeah, but well, basically, when recorded music uh, came in in the eighteen nineties, that was the beginning of the music industry.
0: Whoever was the lad baby of the eighteen nineties,
1: <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you don't want to hear music in yeah. the nineteen hundreds; it's terrible. <laughs>
0: I remembered in Let's Do It, um, I went back and looked at you referencing um, a writer complaining that music had become too mechanised and soulless in 1910. <laughs> you know, nostalgic for their own past, <laughs> even, yeah. you know, in in the far past, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's exactly so. I remember Nick Kent saying The Smiths were the last great guitar band and, you know, about one minute before The Stone Roses and Happy Mondays came along. So, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm always very conscious of trying not to do that as I get older.
0: Yeah, and there are books that do do that, aren't there, with um, writers that get older, CVS, so yes, keeping, keeping that at bay. You know, his writing really brings to life these people, you know, they're not characters, they emerge as people. Um, you know, as you were saying about Irvin Berlin's life story, he began life as Izzy Berlin or Beline. Um, um His father died, he was one of eight kids. Um, lovely lines like, you know, part of his mind became a little old man who saw nothing at all funny about money. He was motivated by you know, trying to get the songs out and writing them. Um, you know, th- th- just little bits of his story reminded me a bit of, you know, something like Barry Gordy with Motown, you know, these connections yeah, yeah, between yeah. eras. Um, a George Gershwin's story also is, um, you know, kind of quite amazing. I remember reading when I was younger about um, Ravel, the composer, you know, loving Gershwin and, you know, Rhapsody in Blue has that kind of mm. feeling of some sort of early twentieth-century classical music, but he died at thirty-eight. I didn't know this until I read, you know, kind of your book and this. Just kind of the elements of his story, um, and you know, Wilfred Sheed is not a sentimental writer, but he has lovely sections like talking about. Um, you know, um, George and his brother Ira, one has only to imagine, as Ira probably did again and again, young George bounding into the room and perching at the piano for the whole scene to be transformed. George was the whole point of these people. And one pictures them coming to life like the waxworks in a dream and the lights going on all over the house to greet him. Wow, I just thought, what an amazing bit of writing. Just this idea of, you know, George Gershon was such a central figure. Um, why is he so important to? This story for people who haven't you know read your book or or know this book
1: uh, well I think he was he was very um he was very welcoming and encouraging of other writers um he was like he wasn't he wasn't hugely rich I and mean, Cole Porter was hugely rich um but the Gershwins were like, reasonably wealthy I and mean, wealthy enough to have uh, i think they moved into uh sort of brownstone in Manhattan and had a piano winch through the window which sounds like they probably had enough money to- <laughs> for that um but uh, yeah, I think he just like he liked he liked a circle of people around him. Um, I think sort of Jay Gatsby is kind of like partly based on him. Um, and uh, he was he was yeah he was he was obviously very charismatic and and very encouraging. So uh, he he liked to. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't think he was I mean, he must have had some kind of ego on him, but he was, I think he he really liked the idea that he was kind of helping popular music to like move along and getting these other writers in and. Uh, suggest giving them help. Um, so it's like a sort of salon in his in his, in his uh, apartment. Mm. I think, um, uh, and uh, a lot of the other writers, like you know Irving Berlin, were just like sort of scrapping around trying to get hits. Or um, uh, yeah, I mean, they were just, just some of them just like Vin, uh, Vincent Humans um, comes across quite badly. <laughs> in Wilfred Sheets, yes. a very grumpy man. Um, and a lot of them were. just like you know a lot of uh, professional songwriters now are pretty just quite grumpy and. <laughs> themselves. they don't want to share anything at all. Um, so yeah, Gershwin was the complete opposite of that, and I think that's why yeah he's so important.
0: You've also got a lot of these people writing songs that you know become known through films. Obviously, you know the list I've mentioned at the beginning. Um, you know, um, "Over the Rainbow," specifically by Harold Arlen, is a, in something that we all know from "The Wizard of Oz." But um, many of these other standards, you know, began in what are now quite obscure movies, really. I thought it was um, interesting thinking about you reading this book as somebody who, with your band, has written music that has you know, been either used in your own films or has been kind of inspired by films as well.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, really, I suppose it's, it's, it's more uh, sort of soundtracks that sort have of inspired us all, well, you know, like things like Twin Peaks, uh, things that uh, where the, the music and the film kind of like are completely, you know, part of the same thing. You can't really separate one from the other. Um, yeah, definitely, it's uh, sort of cinema, you know, music, and cinema, or music and TV. Um, uh, a bit of yeah, you know, the, the way they interconnect have been a big influence on what we do. Um, I think the thing about the, the songs in uh, a lot of the songs in the house that George built are that they are written for musicals, like even before plays um, uh, for like Broadway musicals, which no one remembers at all now. Um, and something like Blue Moon, I think, was in about three different mm. plays before it became a hit, and the, the words kept changing. Um, Rodgers and Hart kept changing it. The song that we know now is is it, it took ages to actually become a hit, which seems, mm. incredible, you know, but it just like it it uh it would it would just be in some musical that, that that's completely forgotten now, and because because a lot of the, the musicals would have had the the songs would have just appeared out of, out of nowhere, uh, <laughs> which had nothing having almost nothing to do with the script. So it's not until Oklahoma in the early forties where you get uh the music and the and the um the 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 dialogue and everything the dancing it's all integrated uh, which is why Oklahoma is such an, an an important play uh, sort of musical um, I'm not a big fan of it but it's like I can I can you can totally see how that yeah, everything changes from that point on um, mm. but yeah prior to that that's why you get these hugely famous songs in in things you've just never ever heard of
0: Yeah, the films are like vehicles for the songs in a way aren't they
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: um, you know, and there's these lovely portraits of people like Johnny Mercer, who you mentioned, who um Wilfred knew, who wrote Moon River and Autumn Leaves, you know, all these fantastic pieces of music. Um you know, um at the back there's also a list of some names that almost got away, which felt like a very Bob Stanley thing to me. Like Who Have I Forgotten? <laughs> who are all these obscure characters I need to put in? Um yeah. which individuals from the book stayed with you?
1: Uh, Lorenz Hart is, 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 is kind of a tragic, another sort of quite a tragic figure. You know, Manhattan, they wrote, and Manhattan's got a great mm-hmm. lyric. Uh, and if you, if you hear Manhattan now, you'll hear it in, what did I hear it in recently? Um, Only Murders in the Building. And it's just played at the beginning of an episode to, to set you in New York. And it's like, a, it's a hundred years old now. And it's mm. like, it's, it still works, you know, it's incredible. Um, so he's an amazing lyricist and, and Richard Rogers obviously writes amazing melodies, but then Lorenz Hart's also a terrible alcoholic. Uh, and he's and he's gay when it's like obviously illegal to be gay, um, and he's really troubled. Um, so uh, he's yeah, he's he's kind of he's, he's he's fascinating and very sad. And Richard Rodgers actually breaks up with him as a songwriter to work with Oscar Hammerstein, not long before Lorenz Hart dies, which is, uh, um, uh, I think I write about in Let's Do It.
0: Mm, there's so many wonderful sounding you know, people in the, in the end of this though. Mabel Wayne. She had private music lessons in Switzerland and became a singer, pianist, and dancer in vaudeville. Clearly, like many women, Ms. Wayne deserves to be much better known. Uh, Stephen Sondheim has just dropped in to this end part <laughs> as well. People who obviously became known in the later era, too. Um You know, the but this book never found a publisher in the UK I was reading. Um, you know, I got this second hand. Um took about two weeks to get to me. Um why do you think that, d- that didn't happen?
1: I don't know. That's crackers. I didn't know that. Well, un- until very recently, th- I think the received wisdom was that books on music don't sell. Um, and then obviously <laughs> Faber social and white rabbit and nine, eight uh, of all sprung up in the last 10 years and proved that to be completely wrong. It's uh, I think publishing is quite a weird world and gets these ideas.
0: So time for um, it to be reissued in a, in a jazzy jacket <laughs> and done, done again. Yeah. Um, As you said earlier as well, he wrote this book in his late um, 70s. Um, He talks several times in the book about having abandoned it. Are there any other books that you've abandoned that you want to go back to?
1: Oh, no, not books, I don't think. I mean, I I never, until I wrote um, Yeah, 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 I'd never really thought about writing a book i never thought i had the the, the stamina to do it or uh <laughs> or i was just used to writing something you know thousand word pieces and uh the idea of writing a hundred thousand words and trying to keep a narrative arc was that like, i just thought too difficult well, i was just, or, or, or just too lazy i suppose really so no i, <laughs> I never uh i never started a book and I haven't finished not yet anyway uh, records we start with written lots of songs that we haven't finished and whole albums a couple of times.
0: Oh really? Mm. Do they hang around um, to, to be, you know, for the elements of them to be repurposed later, or is this stuff that yeah. you know? Obviously, you've got your great fan club releases and all this stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you know, things that are just like one-offs will end up on fan club albums that we we put out every so often. But um, there's there's a couple of albums we started, and you know, songs have probably emerged somewhere or other since. But um, yeah, there was there was a a grand plan that didn't get realised.
0: Okay, I'm trying to guess if there's any you know grand synergy and concept albums from the past that uh, we have missed out on now
1: we <laughs> yeah, talk about it now it's like uh or maybe we want to finish them or something i don't know uh it yeah, was one in the mid nineties which was uh, gonna be sort of uh based on kind of like Vince Guaraldi kind of jazz piano um but with a kind of um, um uh i don't know maybe whatever the more modern production obviously for um yeah. Uh, and it was going to be called Charlie Brown Music. And uh, <laughs> never, never, never. Oh. it was at you know, like, like the height of Britpop. It was like, what, what are we doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bob, for bringing um, The House That George Built by Wilfred Sheed, um, published by Random House in the US, but available um, via various second-hand online bookstores um, in the UK now. So, Bob, do you have a few more book recommendations for us for the end of the podcast?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, crikey, what have I been reading recently? Uh, I've read a well, I've been reading a lot of music books. Not surprisingly, book um, uh, by Jerry Wexler, um, who invented the term rhythm and blues, um, and reminds you several times of the facts in his book. It's called, <laughs> rhythm, it's called Rhythm and the Blues um but uh yeah i mean he was like what did jerry Wexler do he's one of those people who um i think carol king was like in a car driving through new york and she was in traffic and this uh this um car pulled up a yellow cab pulled up next to her and jerry Wexler was wound the window down and goes i got a song title for you natural woman and then just drove off again so- <laughs> <laughs> he gets credit on it because he thought of the title <laughs> um so he's that kind of person it's a it's, uh, it's, it's it's great um, he comes across as someone you might not want to work with, but he's um, he's, he's a very industry person. But I, that was good. And I'm reading a book at the moment by uh, Tony King, which um, I think is only coming out next week. Or I've got to send a centre copy. Um, who's one of those again? got a Zelig-like figure. Who um, he does? Uh, he, he works with Cliff in the Shadows at one point, or Cliff anyway. Um, but he also works with you know Queen and The Stones and God knows everyone. Um, starts in the late '50s in the music industry and. And is still around today. So uh, and appears to be the nicest man in the world. It's like everyone is quite happy to be friends with him. So he's working with uh, Cliff, and he says, um, "He said I knew Cliff's manager from years back because he also managed Olivia Newton-John." And he said, "I remember like uh, suggesting, um, if not for you, as her first si- first single in Britain, and they recorded it and it was her first hit." So you just throw something like that in casually. <laughs> he just like keeps coming up with these ideas and just like filter into the pop mainstream. You've no idea came from this one person um but he says it in a very you know it's a very humble way it's um it's uh yeah it's a great it's a great read um but yeah mostly I read their biographies biographies and music books just because i kind of i kind of have to to uh to um do what i do i suppose
0: do you have like teetering piles everywhere like oh you? yeah
1: yeah by the bed yep. on the dining table everywhere
0: yeah, I've got one, a pile down here. I've got Cozy Fanny Tutti, Sylvia Patterson, um, Alan Johnson's In My Life.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: a <laughs> bit of a mix. You know, all kinds all kinds of stuff. The Alan yeah. Johnson one I, I really liked, actually. Now it's time for our book song, and this is a song inspired by literature, be that by an author, a novel, a poem, or anything else in that world. Um, we're building up a book song playlist on Spotify, which starts with um, Kate Bush's um, The Sensual World, and, goes off in many different directions from there. What's your choice, Bob?
1: Um, well, I was thinking, I was going to say something you can't play is uh, uh, a book called Small Creeps Day by Peter curl Brown, one of my favourite books. It's kind of, it's written in the mid-60s. And it's kind of a, uh, it's about somebody who works in a factory and just goes, uh, wonders what he's doing in the factory, and wonders what he's, he's, I can't think of what he's doing, making little tubes. He walks around the factory to try and find out what uh, Um what these tubes are for, and it's it's very surreal, it's uh absurdist, it's very funny and quite sad as well. Um and it inspired uh Mike Rutherford from Genesis to do a concept album about it, which is not very good. So I wouldn't recommend that <laughs> recommend the book.
0: I kinda of wanna put that on the playlist anyway to just uh confuse people.
1: I think that <laughs> yeah. would be well, Oh it's not on Spotify, though. it's not on his streaming channels. I don't think Mike Rutherford's very proud of it. Uh, <laughs> it kinda of sounds exactly like if you don't like Genesis, it's exactly what you think they sound like. Um so I've kind of been like sort of edging into them a bit and it's like, oh no, this is this is what I always thought they sounded like horrible, noodling, <laughs> unlistenable no no melodies. Um but um yeah, book song. Um I was thinking Picture of Dorian Grey by the T V personalities. Oh nice. They were one of the first uh, groups to wrote about in a fanzine. Um and it's it's obviously a very obvious book, but um Dan Tracy was inspired by a lot of uh books and films really that's what all, all their early songs were kind of like borrowed titles and stories from uh, books and films and um he's you know one of, the, one of the great british songwriters i think um so yeah that's that's my choice
0: fantastic thank you very much that's a good one so um as i said the books on playlist is um on spotify and being built up uh week by week um you know do suggest some to us as well um via the usual social media channels and thank you so much bob for you know not uh being head deep in research today <laughs> coming yeah. to talk to talk to me about music books um Pleasure. and so what's next for you from here
1: um well i'm just finishing off the bg's book at the moment uh, and just sort of you know dotting the eyes and crossing the t's on that and it should be out in june um so I've got to get my skates on, really, with that. Yeah. Uh, and in the Shadows book, I'm just kind of like sort of um, just starting research on, really, at the moment and doing interviews, uh, which is yeah, very exciting.
0: Brilliant. Well, we look forward to both of them. Thank you so much for being yeah. my guest today. Um, thank you all for listening. Songbook episodes from seasons one and two are up now on Apple Podcasts and many other streaming services. Please like and subscribe because it helps get us known and gets more people listening. Thank you very much again and see you next week. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production presented and written by Jude Rogers Music by David Holmes Episode producer Jake Alderson, editor Dan Jones.